Today we have a story of loyalty, desertion, and deceit in Civil War West Virginia. This is Ryan, and welcome to Footnoting History. I stumbled across this story about four years ago when I was a fellow at the George Tyler Morse Center for the study of the Civil War at Shepherd University in Shepherdstown, West Virginia, which is about four miles from the battlefield at Antietam. The center, which is engaged in extensive, an, an extensive database project, hosted me for the summer, and during that time I had unlimited access to records from the soldiers from that state. The Rabers were relatively anonymous in the broader history of the war. Private soldiers, their families were neither rich nor poor. Military service did not propel them into important post-war positions in, in America. The men who survived the war, as you will see, returned to a relatively ignoble post-war life. And that said, the story is not one that many people have heard before, though it provides interesting perspective on individual acts and personal motivations within the broader context of the Civil War. A war that's typically viewed from a national perspective of North and South, a fight for the Union on one side or the Confederacy on the other. Uh, the Raber case, I think, illustrates the private motivations that drove men to act in loyal and disloyal ways. On October 3, 1863, Private Philip Raber of Company K of the 9th Virginia U.S. Infantry, a Union regiment, was found guilty of desertion and sentenced to be shot to death by musketry. This sentence, upheld by Brigadier General B.F. Kelly, commander of the Department of West Virginia, was carried out by firing squad on the morning of November 27, 1864 in Fairfax, Virginia. Raber's court-martial and subsequent execution are in themselves unique within the history of the war. Desertion cases made up the majority of the 267 official Union executions during the war, although not all soldiers found guilty of fleeing the ranks were executed. However, Raber's case brought to light an even more interesting series of facts. During the same period, two other men were also convicted of desertion. Both were members of the Raber family, William, Philip's father, and Christopher, his younger brother. And both received fairly light sentences. They were dishonorably discharged from the Union Army and drummed out of the ranks. The unique nature of this case, the fact that three family members were all court-martialed on the same day, draws attention to the tenuous nature of loyalty in the border states during the war uh, and suggests, too, the, the importance of family in a war that has often been portrayed as brother fighting brother. Born in Virginia in 1807, by 1850, William Raber was a 42-year-old farmer in the Western District of Marion County, Virginia. He lived with his wife, 33-year-old Cassander, and their eight children. They owned a farm that in 1850 was valued at around $200. And by 1860, the year before war, the war broke out, the elder Raber, then 52, had doubled the value of his real estate holdings. This says that the Rabers, though not wealthy, were certainly not poor. And perhaps the growth of this farm over the 10 years prior to the war could be attributed to the labor that was gained as his sons, Philip and Christopher, became teenagers and could actively participate in the labor on the farm. The family lived in the small town of Glover Gap in Marion County, which is approximately 60 miles southwest of Wheeling and 30 miles west of Morgantown. And it was an area that had strong connections to the Midwest. There were relatively few slaves in this portion of Virginia, and this area and their people were constantly at odds politically with the slaveholding regions in the southeast. 
And when Virginia seceded from the Union in 1861, this region, which became known as West Virginia, summarily seceded from Virginia to remain in the Union. The Rabers, Christopher, then 19, Philip, 20, and William, 44. You can see William, the father, lied about his age when he enlisted because he was in his mid-50s at the time and thus uh, outside of the acceptable range of military service mustered into federal service in Company K of the 9th Virginia on April 30, 1862. They enlisted with 25 other men from their home county in Marion. And it was these same men, neighbors and comrades, who played an instrumental role in the court-martial proceedings that took place over the next two years. It's possible that for Philip and Christopher, this, this trip to join the 9th Virginia marked the longest distance they had ever traveled from their home. And for all three of these men, a combination of excitement and apprehension must have followed them when they signed their muster rolls. Perhaps, like Samuel Jennison of the 10th Minnesota, the Raver boys imagined future glory in the ranks as, quote, a battle to the fights of which I had some knowledge among boys and expectation that promised hand-to-hand, bowie-knife, club, musket, and knock-down and drag-out method of warfare. Or, perhaps, like others, they envisioned a glorious experience in which, as one soldier recalled, The officers were at the front on prancing steeds, uplifted swords, leading their followers to the charge. For whatever reason, and likely there were many, army life did not appeal to the Rabers, but this plight was not unique. As one historian has noted, desertion ranks were higher among married men than unmarried men, especially if distance from home threatened soldiers' family with danger and hunger. This is not an unreasonable suggestion and could explain why William the senior Raber was the first to desert Company K, only two months after he enlisted in the service. It's reasonable to think that his wife, Cassander, home with four children all under the age of 15, wasn't able to handle the work on the family farm. Assuming that the men had left after the spring crop was planted, William's desertion would have coincided with the fall harvest, and he likely left the ranks to help his family at home. However, we should also not underestimate the rigors of army life as a reason for desertion. William, like numerous men caught up uh, in the consuming patriotism after the Confederate attack on Fort Sumner, lied about his age. And he would have been 10 years older than the maximum age for enlistment in 1861, which was 44. Army life was hard even for men in their late teens and early 20s, and it would have been incredibly difficult for a man of that age. For his sons, Philip and Christopher, the decision to desert seems to have been more difficult than their fathers. Both waited until September 20th of 1862, five months after their muster, to flee the ranks. According to the rolls from the regiment, both brothers were confined in the Union Hospital at Charleston when they deserted, and it's possible that separation from their regiment combined with word from home that spoke of the hardships in their absence motivated these brothers to desert the ranks. At some point in the two months after their desertion, the brothers became separated, and in November of 1862, Philip was arrested by Union authorities and taken before the court in February of 1863. During the period before trial, Philip was held in Winchester, Virginia. And according to Lieutenant Rollins, Raber's first lieutenant in Company K, the private was kept apart from the company, but met with his captains two or three times before the general court-martial. Pleas for leniency were taken into consideration by the judge advocate for Raver's life was spared. Originally sentenced to six months ball and chain and then to have his head shaved and drummed out of service, the sentence was commuted to one month's ball and chain labor and a stoppage of three months pay 
and to return to his company for duty. Yet, despite this apparently light sentence, Philip Raber chose to desert again, this less than one week after donning the ball and chain. Lieutenant Rollins called in as a witness to Raber's second court-martial, when asked where Raber was before his second arrest, stated that he heard from hearsay, his neighbor wrote to one of the men in his company and said that Philip was home. Clearly, something was important enough in Marion County for Philip to risk his life a second time by desertion, this time while serving punishment for his first attempted foray home. But Rollins' evidence against Philip provides us with another interesting aspect of the case against the Raber family. Based on the evidence available, it's clear that neighbors and friends from home wrote to their sons and husbands in Company K, telling them where the Rabers were hiding out. And on August 29th of 1863, William, Christopher, and Philip were all arrested by Union authorities in West Virginia. A court-martial was convened, and Christopher and William, found guilty on all charges of desertion, forfeited their pay, had their heads shaved, and were drummed out of service of the United States. They returned home to what was likely a very hostile community, and they returned home in disgrace. Philip was not as lucky as his father and brother. The second arrest from desertion, this time from a prison where he was to carry out punishment for his first leave of absence, or French leave, was grounds for a harsher punishment. The court-martial, recorded on a scant 10 pages, clearly shows that there was little compassion for this second offender. Raber faced two charges, desertion a second time for his escape from the guardhouse in March of 1862, and breaking guard, which occurred during his second escape attempt. Philip pled not guilty to all charges. Two men were called by the prosecution to identify the accused and comment on his desertion. Along with Lieutenant Rollins, Private Jasper Kennedy, also from Marion County, identified Raber as an offender. The addition of Jasper Kennedy as a witness is interesting because there were 25 other men from Raber's home who could have identified the soldier. And it's conceivable that Kennedy was one of the men who had received letters from home noting that the Rabers had returned and where they were hiding. And it's also possible that his role in identifying Raber was a symbolic retribution by the community that had been harmed by the desertion of these men. Philip, representing himself, asked only two questions in cross-examination, both with the intent, it seems, of downplaying the charge of breaking the guard. Did you, he asked Lieutenant Rollins, see the accused with a ball and chain on his leg? Philip asked. I did not see him, Rollins replied. Raber then responded, How do you know that the accused was turned over to the sergeant major of the cavalry? It was part of the sentence that he should be, and I heard from all the men in the company say they had seen him under the sergeant major of the cavalry. Philip neither asked questions of Kennedy nor offered any testimony in his defense. It appears there was little he could have done. His fate was sealed after his second arrest for desertion. The deliberation and sentencing of the court found him guilty on all charges and sentenced him to be shot to death. In the wake of this trial, word was sent home that Philip Raber will be executed at Fayetteville under the immediate superintendence of the Provost Marshal of the 2nd Brigade. This order was followed by correspondence on the day of the execution, noting that Raber would be executed between the hours of 2 and 3 o'clock. Troops will be paraded as required in general order. Philip Raber's execution at 3.30 on the afternoon of November 27th, like the humiliating sentences handed down to his father and brother, would be used as an example of the consequences for desertion. For the people in Fairmont Township, the Raber family did not vanish into obscurity after Philip's execution. 
Christopher, his brother, was arrested by Union authorities in December 1864 for bushwhacking. Two residents of the township, with the help of the Justice of the Peace, notified the state authorities of Christopher's actions in the months after his brother's death. These women, the Justice wrote, claimed they were present in the early part of the month when Christopher Raber visited his mother, who was a prisoner in Marion County Jail, for supporting the bushwhacking activities of her son. Well in jail, these witnesses heard Christopher Raber say that he had been with the guerrillas on Pyle's Fork of Buffalo and that he intended to bushwhack, steal, rob, and kill the remainder of his life. And they did not care who heard him say it. And that if he killed Jake Yost and secured what he had stolen, it would be all right. Christopher was captured on Christmas Eve and as a bushwhacker placed in confinement in prison in Wheeling, West Virginia, until the war ended. He was finally released on June 22nd, 1865. These witnesses suggest a number of things about the rise and fall of the Raber family and the consequence of enlistment and desertion from the Union Army. In the wake of Philip's execution, Christopher became an outlaw. His mother was imprisoned, and these two events would have cast the family out from normal social interactions in their local community. Christopher's participation with guerrilla groups would have increased scrutiny from his neighbors and made him seem even more disloyal to the Union cause than his desertion itself would have implied. More interesting, I think, is Christopher's rationale for bushwhacking, especially when placed within the larger context of the family's experiences over the last three years. Christopher's allegiances here are only to bushwhacking, stealing, robbing, and killing. He does not claim any anti-unionist sentiment. He does not claim to be loyal to the Confederacy. He claims to be loyal only to retaliation. In fact, his threat is against Jake Yost. Who was Jake Yost? Jake Yost was the youngest brother of Louis Yost, who had also enlisted with William, Christopher, and Philip and Company K., Was this bushwhacking simply a retaliation against the people who had helped bring down his family's demise? Was this bushwhacking a response to the execution of his brother? It's very possible. Nevertheless, Christopher's arrest continued what can only be called the ugly demise of the Raber family. The 1870 census provides a glimpse into a family that had suffered immensely from the consequences of the Civil War. Philip was no longer listed in the census, having been executed seven years earlier in Virginia. Nor did William appear. It's likely he passed away, though not before providing Cassandra with a final child, Alabama, who was born in 1863. The Ravers did not lose any property in the wake of the events of 1860, and Cassandra, the head of the house, held approximately $400 in property and $140 in personal wealth, nearly identical to what had been listed in the 1860 census. Her son, Christopher, was listed as a farmhand. For 40 years after the 1870 census, no record of Christopher exists. What he was doing is anybody's guess. But he appeared again in 1910, listed as a general farmhand and heading a household comprised of eight cousins, his younger sister, Alabama, then 47, and her daughter, Chloe, then 16. Raybert seems, was unmarried, perhaps because the stigma of his bushwhacking life had prevented him from finding a wife. He was the last of the Rabers of Company K of the 9th Virginia Volunteer Infantry. This has been Footnoting History. 
If you like the podcast, be sure to visit our website, footnotinghistory.com, where you can find links to further reading suggestions related to this week's episode, as well as a calendar of upcoming podcasts. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at History Footnote. Until next time, remember, the best stories are always in the footnotes. See you next week.